Welcome, I am your host, and this is the Unanswered Questions Podcast. Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of my new podcast, Unanswered Questions, where every week we'll endeavour to discuss a mysterious unsolved case that has many lingering unanswered questions. So I hope you enjoy, and as always, leave me some feedback on what you think about the show, and rate it as well. Now on to the show. This week we'll be talking about the 2001 Anthrax Attacks, which is also known as Amerithrax, which is a portmanteau of America and Anthrax from its FBI case name. I'm with NBC. I'm here uh, with Mayor. This morning we received uh, a positive test for cutaneous anthrax uh, for one of our colleagues who works on nightly news. A floor of the NBC television network headquarters closed down. Authorities determining if any other traces of the anthrax bacteria are present. They said that somebody in the building had anthrax. That was frightening. At NBC, there's one other person who handled the letter who uh, is now confirmed to have developed cutaneous anthrax. Get him out of here. Get him out of here. Come on, let's go. In this huge stack of mail, I saw this letter. When I opened the letter, I got chills all over, so. It said 9-11-01, death to America, death to Israel, Allah is great. And inside was what appeared to be, to me, it looked like a combination of brown sugar and sand. I took the substance and I dumped it into the trash. I just was incredibly sick. I felt like there was something running like through my whole body and my veins. My doctors gave me an antibiotic. I could have died easily if I had just one misstep or if I decided I was going to smell that, you know, the anthrax, I would have been dead. We had a car waiting downstairs to take us to the FBI. You know, we're whisked away in a black car. I remember I looked over at the ticker by the Today Show and it was like anthrax at NBC and I thought, oh my God, this is crazy. The big fear was this is the second wave of a terrorist attack. And now we've got an Islamic terrorist group that's sending out poison to people. It just feels so vulnerable now because you don't know what's gonna happen, where it's gonna happen. The real concern at that point is, are there more of these? This comes to us from Washington, D.C. President Bush just announced uh, from the Rose Garden that uh, Senate Majority Leader Tom Daschle um, has reported seeing a suspicious letter and that authorities believe that letter contains anthrax. I did contact each of the other members of leadership. If it happened in my office, it could happen elsewhere. 
Law enforcement officials say they now have reason to believe that there may be a connection between the Daschle case in Washington, the NBC News case in New York, and the tabloid newspaper case in Florida. Uh, we'll answer a couple of questions, Fournier. Anthrax attack, sir. Do you believe that there is any connection to bin Laden's organization? Well, there may be some possible link. He and his spokesman are openly bragging about how they hope to inflict more pain on our country. I wouldn't put it past him, but we don't have hard evidence yet. Yeah, Ron. The seven-month-old son of an ABC News employee and a worker at the New York Post newspaper was diagnosed with CBS News anchor Dan Rather exposed as well. Do you know how much mail, how many packages I've opened up? I don't. I don't want to touch the mail. It's a new form of human warfare. Kathy Nguyen did die due to inhalation and this time it's a woman in Connecticut that has provided more questions than answers. But until there is a suspect, no one will know whether this was a terrorist act and whether it is related to the September 11 terrorists who tried to rent a crop-dusting aircraft. I think if we're really being honest, if America's prepared for a chemical attack, the answer is no. Oh, my God! Uh, maybe we shouldn't be talking here. Maybe there's some anthrax flying around in the air. Pharmacy supplies of the antibiotic Cipro, one of the drugs known to fight anthrax, are thin. Gas masks sell out in Los Angeles. It's probably a little paranoia or anything, but I'm not going to take the chance. That's all. We face an enemy as ruthless and as unpredictable as any we've ever faced. And the road back to a sense of security could be a long one. I feel like uh, go to work. I don't know what's going to happen next. Which occurred in the United States over the course of several weeks beginning on September 18th of 2001, one week after the September 11 terrorist attacks. Letters containing anthrax spores were mailed to several news media officers and to Democratic Senators Tom Daschle and Patrick Lee, sorry if I get those names wrong, killing five people and infecting 17 others. According to the FBI, the ensuing investigation became, and I quote, one of the largest and most complex in the history of law enforcement. End quote. It's also known, from what I'm to understand, as a very controversial case, as we'll get into, I don't want to foreshadow too much, but this case is very, very controversial because of the investigation and because of other factors that we'll get into. A major focus in the early years of the investigation was bioweapons expert Stephen Hatfield, who was eventually exonerated. Bruce Edward Ivins, a scientist at the government's biodefense labs at Fort Detrick in Frederick, Maryland, became a focus around April 4th of 2005. On April 11th of 2005, 2007, Ivans was put under periodic surveillance and an FBI document stated that he was, and I quote, an extremely sensitive suspect in the 2001 anthrax attacks, end quote. On July 29th of 2008, Ivans committed suicide with an overdose of astamophen, or Tylenol. Sorry, I forget that name wrong. Federal prosecutors declared Ivans the sole culprit on August 6th of 2008, based on DNA evidence leading to an anthrax vial in his lab. Two days later, Senator Chuck Grassley and Representative Rush D. Holt Jr. called for hearings into the Department of Justice and FBI's handling of the investigation. The FBI formally closed its investigation on February 19th of 2010. In 2008, the FBI requested a review of the scientific methods used in their investigation from the National Academy of Sciences, which released their findings in the 2011 report, Review of the Scientific Approaches Used During the FBI's Investigation of the 2001 Anthrax Letters. The report cast doubt on the government's conclusion that Ivans was the perpetrator, finding that the type of anthrax used in the letters was correctly identified as the Ames strain of the bacterium, but that there was insufficient scientific evidence for the FBI's assertion that it originated from Ivans' laboratory. 
The FBI responded by pointing out that the review panel asserted that it would not be possible to reach a definite conclusion based on science alone and said that a combination of factors led to the FBI to conclude that Ivans had been the perpetrator. Some information is still sealed concerning the case and Ivan's mental health. The government settled lawsuits that were filed by the widow of the first anthrax victim, Bob Stevens, for $2.5 million with no admission of liability. The settlement was reached solely for the purpose of, and I quote, avoiding the expenses and risks of further litigations, end quote, according to a statement in the agreement. The attacks followed a week after the September 11 attacks, which had caused the destruction of the World Trade Center in New York City, damage to the Pentagon in Arlington, Virginia, and the crash of an airliner in Shakesville, Pennsylvania. The anthrax attack came in two waves. The first set of anthrax letters had a Trenton, New Jersey postmark dated September 18th of 2001. Five letters are believed to have been mailed at this time to ABC News, CBS News, NBC News, and the New York Post, all located in New York City and to the National Enquirer, at American Media Inc. AMI in Boca Raton, Florida. Robert Stevens, who worked at the Sun Tabloid, also published by AMI, died on October 5th of 2001, four days after entering a Florida hospital with an undiagnosed illness that caused him to vomit and be short of breath. Only the New York Post and NBC News letters were found. The existence of the other three letters is inferred because individuals at ABC, CBS, and AMI became infected with anthrax. Scientists examining the anthrax from the New York Post letters said it appeared as a clumped, coarse, brown, granular material looking like dog food. Two more anthrax letters bearing the same Trenton postmark were dated October 9th, three weeks after the first mailing. The letters were addressed to two Democratic senators, Tom Daschle of South Dakota and Patrick Lee of Vermont. At the time, Daschle was the Senate Majority Leader and Lee was head of the Senate Judiciary Committee. The Daschle letter was opened by an aide, Grant Leslie, on October 15th and the government mail service was shut down. The unopened Lee letter was discovered in an impounded mailbag on November 16th. The Lee letter had been misdirected to the State Department mail annex in Sterling, Virginia because a zip code was misread. A postal worker there, David Hose, contracted inhalational anthrax. More potent than the first anthrax letters, the material in the Senate letters was a highly refined dry powder consisting of about one gram of nearly pure spores. A series of conflicting news reports appeared, some claiming the powder had been weaponized with silica. Bioweapons experts who later viewed images of the attack anthrax saw no indication of weaponization. Tests by Sandina National Laboratories in early 2002 confirmed that the attack powders were not weaponized. At least 22 people developed anthrax infections, 11 of whom contracted the especially life-threatening inhalational variety. Five died of inhalational anthrax. Stevens, two employees of the Brentwood Mail facility in Washington, D.C., Thomas Morris Jr. and Joseph Curson, and two whose source of exposure to the bacteria is still unknown. Kathy Nguyen, a Vietnamese immigrant, resided in the New York City borough of the Bronx who worked in the city, and the last known victim, Ottilie Lundgren, a 94-year-old widow of a prominent judge from Oxford, Connecticut. Because it took so long to identify a culprit, the 2001 anthrax attacks have been compared to the Unabomber attacks, which took place from 1978 to 1995. Authorities believe the anthrax letters were mailed from Princeton, New Jersey. Investigators found anthrax spores in a city street mailbox located at 10 Nassau Street near the Princeton University campus. About 600 mailboxes were tested for anthrax, which could have been used to mail the letters, and the Nassau Street box was the only one to test positive. Now I'm going to read word for word what the actual letters said. So here's the contents of the letters. The New York Post and NBC news letters contained the following note. 091101. This is next. Take penicillin now. 
death to America, death to Israel. Allah is great. The second note was addressed to Senators Deshaun and Lee and read 091101. You cannot stop us. We have this anthrax. You die now. Are you afraid? Death to America. Death to Israel. Allah is great. All the letters were copies made by a copy machine and the originals were never found. Each letter was trimmed to a slightly different size. The Senate letters uses punctuation while the media letter does not. The handwriting on the media letter and envelopes is roughly twice the size of the handwriting on the Senate letter and envelopes. The envelope addressed to Senators Deshaun and Lee had a fictitious return address which was 4th grade Greendale School Franklin Park NJ 08852. Franklin Park, New Jersey exists, but the zip code 08852 is for nearby Monmouth Junction, New Jersey. There is no Greendale School in Franklin Park or Monmouth Junction, New Jersey, though there is a Greenbook Elementary School in adjacent South Brunswick Township of New Jersey. Now, the Amerithrax investigation involved many leads which took time to evaluate, evaluate and resolve. Among them were numerous letters which initially appeared to be related to the anthrax attacks but were never directly linked. For example, before the New York letters were found, hoax letters mailed from St. Petersburg, Florida were thought to be the anthrax letters or related to them. A letter received at the Microsoft offices in Reno, Nevada after the discovery of the Shell letters gave a false positive in a test for anthrax. Later, because the letter had been sent from Malaysia, Maryland Thompson of the Washington Post connected the letter to Stephen Hatfield, whose girlfriend was from Malaysia. The letter merely contained a check and some pornography and was neither a threat nor a hoax. A copycat hoax letter containing harmless white powder was opened by reporter Judith Miller in the New York Times newsroom. Also unconnected to the anthrax attacks was a large envelope received in American Media Inc. in Boca Raton, Florida, which was among the victims of the attacks, in September of 2001. It was addressed, and I quote, Please forward to Jennifer Lopez, C slash O, The Sun, end quote. It contained a metal cigar tube with a cheap cigar inside, an empty can of chewing tobacco, a small detergent carton, pink powder, a star of David Pendant, and a handwritten letter to Jennifer Lopez. The writer said how much he loved her and asked her to marry him. End quote. Another letter, which mimicked the original anthrax letter to Senator Deschal, was mailed to Deschal from London in November of 2001, at a time when Hatfield was in England, not far from London. Shortly after the discovery of the anthrax letters, someone sent a letter to authorities stating, and I quote, Dr. Assad is a potential biological terrorist, end quote. No connection to the anthrax letters was ever found. During the first years of the FBI's investigation, Don Foster, a professor of English at Vassar College, attempted to connect the anthrax letters and various hoax letters from the same period to Stephen Hatfield. Foster's beliefs were published in Vanity Fair Reader's Digest. Hatfield sued and was later exonerated. The lawsuit was settled out of court. The letters sent to the media contained a coarse brown material, while the letters sent to the two U.S. Senators contained a fine powder. The brown granular anthrax mostly caused skin infections, cutaneous anthrax in 9 out of 12 cases, although Kathy Nguyen's case of inhalation anthrax occurred at the same time and in the same general area as two cutaneous cases and several other exposures. The AMI letter, which caused inhalation cases in Florida, appears to have been mailed at the same time as the other media letters. The fine powder anthrax sent to the Senate it has mostly caused the more dangerous form of infection known as inhalational anthrax, 8 out of 10 cases. Postal worker Patrick O'Donnell and accountant Linda Birch contracted cutaneous anthrax from the Senate letters. 
All of the material was derived from the same bacterial strain known as the Ames strain. The Ames strain, as I understand it, was a common strain isolated from a cow in Texas in 1981. The name Ames refers to the town of Ames, Iowa, but was mistakenly attached to this isolate in 1981 because of a mix-up about the mailing label on a package. First researched at the United States Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases, USAMRIID, in Fort Detrick, Maryland, the Ames strain was then distributed to 16 bioresearch labs within the US and three other locations, Canada, Sweden and the United Kingdom. DNA sequencing of the anthrax taken from Robert Stevens, the first victim, was conducted at the Institute for Geogeomic Research, TIGR, beginning in December of 2001. Sequencing was finished within a month and the analysis was published in the journal Science in early 2002. Radiocarbon dating conducted by the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in June of 2002 established that the anthrax was cultured no more than two years before the mailings. Now we get into the mutations. Early in 2002, it was noted that there were variants or mutations in the anthrax cultures that were grown from powder found in the letters. Scientists at TIGR sequenced the complete genomes for many of these isolates during the period from 2001 to 2004. This sequencing identified three relatively large changes in some of the isolates, each comprising a region of DNA that had been duplicated or triplicated. The size of these regions ranged from 823 BP to 2607 BP, and all occurred near the same genes. Details of these mutations were published in 2011 in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. These changes became the basis of PCR assays used to test other samples to find any that contained the same mutations. The assays were validated over the many years of the investigation, and the repository of AIM samples was also being built. From roughly 2003 to 2006, the repository and the screenings of the 1,070 AIM samples in that repository were completed. Based on the testing, the FBI concluded that flask RMR1029 was the parent material of the anthrax spore powder. Ivans had sole control over that flask. On October 24th of 2001, USAMRIID scientist Peter Jarling was summoned to the White House after he reported signs that silicon had been added to anthrax recovered from the letter addressed to Dashiell. Silicon would make the anthrax more capable of penetrating the lungs. Seven years later, Jarling told the Los Angeles Times on September 17th, 2008, quote, I believe I made an honest mistake, adding that he had been overly impressed by what he thought he saw under the microscope, end quote. Richard Preston's book provides details of conversations and events at USAMRIID during the period from October 16th of 2001 to October 25th of 2001. Key scientists prescribed to Preston what they were thinking during that period. When the Dashiell spores first arrived at USAMRIID, the key concern was the smallpox viruses might be mixed with the spores. Jarling met John Etzel in a hallway and said in a loud voice, God damn it, John, we need to know if the powder is laced with smallpox. End quote. Thus, the initial research was for signs of smallpox viruses. On October 16th, USAMRIID scientists began by examining spores that had been in a milky white liquid from a field test done by the FBI's Hazardous Materials Response Unit, HMR. U. Liquid chemicals were then used to deactivate the spores. When scientists turned up the powder on the electron beam of the transmission electron microscope, TEM, T -E -M, the spores began to ooze, according to Preston. 
Whoa, Jarling muttered, hunched over the eyepieces. Something was boiling off the spores. This is clearly bad stuff, he said. This was not your mother's anthrax. The spores had something in them, an additive, perhaps. Could this material have come from a national bioweapons program? From Iraq? Did Al-Qaeda have anthrax capability that was this good? End quote. On October 25th of 2001, the day after senior officials at the White House were informed that additives had been found in the anthrax, USAMRIID scientist Tom Giesbert, sorry if I get that name wrong, took a different irradiated sample of the Dachau anthrax to the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology, AFIP, to find out if the powder contained any metals or elements, end quote. AFIP's energy dispersive x-ray spectrometer reportedly indicated that there were two extra elements in the spores, silicon and oxygen. Silicon dioxide as glass. The anthrax terrorist or terrorists had put powdered glass or silica into the anthrax. The silica was powdered so finely that under Giesbert's electron microscope, it had looked like fried egg gunk dripping off the spores. End quote. The goop Peter Jarling had seen oozing from the spores was not seen when AFIP examined different spores killed with radiation. The controversy surrounding all of this began the day after the White House meeting. The New York Times reported, and I quote, Contradicting some U.S. officials, three scientists call anthrax powder high grade. Two experts say the anthrax was altered to produce a more deadly weapon, end quote. And the Washington Post reported, and I quote, Additive made spores deadlier, end quote. Countless news stories discussed the additives for the next eight years, continuing into 2010. Later, the FBI claimed a lone individual could have created the anthrax spores for as little as $2,500 using readily available laboratory equipment. A number of press reports appeared suggesting the Senate anthrax had coatings and additives. Newsweek reported the anthrax sent to Senator Lee had been coated with a chemical compound previously unknown to bioweapon experts. On October 28th of 2002, the Washington Post reported FBI's theory on anthrax is doubted, suggesting that the Senate spores were coated with fumed silica. Two bioweapons experts that were utilized as consultants by the FBI, Kenneth Albeck and Matthew Messelin, sorry if I get those names wrong, were shown electron micrographs of the anthrax from the Deschal letter. In a November 5th, 2002 letter to the editors of the Washington Post, they stated that they saw no evidence the anthrax spores had been coated with fumed silica. In Science Magazine, one group of scientists said that the material could have been made by someone knowledgeable with standard laboratory equipment. Another group said it was, and I quote, a diabolical advance in biological weapons technology, end quote. The article describes a technique used to anchor silicon nanoparticles to the surface of spores using polymerized glass. An August 2006 article in Applied and Environmental Microbiology written by Douglas Beecher of the FBI labs in Quantico, Virginia, states individuals familiar with the com compositions of the powders in the letters have indicated that they were comprised simply of spores purified to different extents. End quote. The article also specifically criticizes a widely circulated misconception that the spores were produced using additives in sophisticated engineering supposedly akin to military weapon production. The harm done by this misconception is described this way. Quote, this idea is usually the basis for implying that the powders were indirectly dangerous compared to spores alone. The persistent credence given to this impression fosters erroneous preconceptions which may misguide research and preparedness efforts and generally de detract from the the magnitude of hazards posed by simple spore preparations. Critics of the article complained that it did not provide supporting references. 
In late October of 2001, ABC Chief Investigative Correspondent Brian Ross linked the anthrax sample to Saddam Hussein because of its purportedly containing the unusual additive bentonite. On October 26th, Ross said, Sources tell ABC News the anthrax in the tainted letter sent to Senate Majority Leader Tom Daschle was laced with bentonite. The potent additive is known to have been used by only one country in producing biochemical weapons, Iraq. It is a trademark of Iraq leader Saddam Hussein's biological weapons program. The discovery of bentonite came in an urgent series of tests conducted at Fort Detrick, Maryland and elsewhere. End quote. On October 28th, Ross said that despite the continued White House denials, four well-placed and separate sources have told ABC News that initial tests on the anthrax by the U.S. Army at Fort Detrick, Maryland, have detected trace amounts of the chemical additive bentonite and silica, a charge that was repeated several times on October 28th and 29th. On October 29th of 2001, White House spokesperson Scott Stanzel disputed reports that the anthrax sent to the Senate contained bentonite, an additive that had been used in Iraqi President Saddam Hussein's biological weapons program. Stanzel said, based on the test results we have, no bentonite has been found. The same day, Major General John Parker at a White House briefing stated, we do know that we found silica in the samples. Now, we don't know what that motive would be or why it would be there or anything, but there is silica in the samples and that led us to be absolutely sure that there is no aluminium in the sample because the combination of a silicate plus aluminium is sort of the major ingredients of bentonite. Just over a week later, Homeland Security Advisor Tom Ridge in a White House press conference on November 7th of 2001 stated, and I quote, the ingredient that we talked about before was silicon, end quote. Neither Ross at ABC nor anyone else publicly pursued any further claims about bentonite despite Ross's original claim that four well-placed and separate sources had confirmed its detection. Now we get into the disputes over this silicon content. Some of the anthrax spores, about 65 to 75% in the anthrax attacks letters, contain silicon inside their spore coats. Silicon was even reportedly found inside the natural spore coat of a spore that was still inside the mother germ, which was asserted to confirm that the element was not added after the spores were formed and purified, i.e. the spores were not weaponized. In 2010, a Japanese study reported silicon is considered to be a quasi-essential element for most living organisms. However, silicate uptake in bacteria and its psychological functions have remained obscure. The study showed that spores from some species can contain as much as 6.3% dry weight of silicates. For more than 20 years, significant levels of silicon had been reported in spores of at least some Bacillus species, including the most Bacillus cereus, a close relative of B, I'm going to butcher this name, Anthracis. According to spore expert Peter Setlow, since silicate accumulation in other organisms can impart structural rigidity, perhaps silicate plays such a role for spores as well. The FBI lab concluded that 1.4% of the powder in the lead letter was silicon. Stuart Jacobson, a small particle chemistry expert, stated that, and I quote, this is a shockingly high proportion of silicon. It is a number one would expect from the deliberate weaponization of anthrax, but not from any conceivable accidental contamination. Scientists at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory conducted experiments in an attempt to determine if the amount of silicon in the growth medium was the controlling factor which caused silicon to accumulate inside a spore's natural coat. The Livermore scientists tried 56 different experiments, adding increasingly high amounts of silicon to the media. All of their results were far below the 1.4% level of the attack anthrax, some as low as 0.001%. The conclusion was that something other than the level of silicon controlled how much silicon was absorbed by the spores. 
Richard O. Spurzel, a microbiologist who led the United Nations Biological Weapons Inspections of Iraq, wrote that the anthrax used could not have come from the lab where Ivans worked. Spitzel said he remained sceptical of the bruise argument despite the new evidence presented on August 18th of 2008 in an unusual FBI briefing for reporters. He questioned the FBI's claim that the powder was less than military grade, in part because of the presence of high levels of silica. The FBI had been unable to reproduce the attack spores with the high levels of silica. The FBI attributed the presence of high silica levels to natural variability. This conclusion of the FBI contradicted its statements at an earlier point in the investigation when the FBI had stated based on the silicon content that the anthrax was weaponized, a step that made the powder more airy and required special scientific know-how. If there is that much silicon, it had to have been added, stated Jeffrey Adamovics, who supervised Ivan's work at Fort Detrick. Adamovics explained that the silicon in the anthrax attack could have been added via a large ferminator, which Battelle and some other facilities use, but we did not use a ferminator to grow anthrax at USAMRIID, and we did not have the capability to add silicon compounds to anthrax spores, end quote. Ivans had neither the skills nor the means to attach silicon to anthrax spores, and Richard Spurzel explained that the Fort Detrick facility did not handle anthrax in powdered form. Quote, I don't think there's anyone there who would have the foggiest idea how to do it. End quote. Authorities travelled to six continents, interviewed over 9,000 people, conducted 67 searches, and issued over 6,000 subpoenas. Hundreds of FBI personnel worked on the case at the outset, struggling to discern whether the September 11 Al-Qaeda attacks and the anthrax murders were connected before eventually concluding that they were not. End quote. In September of 2006, there were still 17 FBI agents and 10 postal inspectors assigned to the case, including FBI Special Agent C. Franks Figluzzi, who was on the scene commander of the evidence recovery efforts. The FBI and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, both gave permission for Iowa State University to destroy the Iowa Anthrax Archive, and the archive was destroyed on October 10th and 11th of 2001. The FBI and CDC investigation was hampered by the destruction of a large collection of anthrax spores collected over more than seven decades and kept in more than 100 vials at Iowa State University, Ames, Iowa. Many scientists claim that the quick destruction of the anthrax spores collection in Iowa eliminated crucial evidence useful for the investigation. A precise match between the strain of anthrax used in the attacks and a strain in the collection would have offered hints as to when the bacteria had been isolated and perhaps as to how widely it had been distributed to researchers. Such genetic clues could have given investigators the evidence necessary to identify the perpetrators. Immediately after the attacks, White House officials pressured FBI Director Robert Mueller to publicly blame them on Al-Qaeda following the September 11 attacks. During the President's morning intelligence briefings, Mueller was beaten up for not producing proof that the killer spores were the handiwork of Osama bin Laden, according to a former aide. They really wanted to blame somebody in the Middle East, the retired senior FBI official stated. The FBI knew early on that the anthrax used was of a consistency requiring sophisticated equipment and was unlikely to have been produced in some cave. At the same time, President Bush and Vice President Cheney in public statements speculated about the possibility of a link between anthrax attacks and Al-Qaeda. The Guardian reported in early October that American scientists had implicated Iraq as the source of the anthrax and the next day the Wall Street Journal editorialized 
implies that al-Qaeda perpetrated the mailings with Iraq, the source of the anthrax. A few days later, John McCain suggested on The Late Show with David Letterman that the anthrax may have come from Iraq, and the next week, ABC News did a series of reports stating that three or four, depending on the report, sources had identified bentonite as an ingredient in the anthrax preparations, implicating Iraq. Statements by the White House and public officials quickly proved that there was no bentonite in the anthrax attack. No test ever found or even suggested the presence of bentonite. The claim was just concocted from the start. It never happened. End quote. Nonetheless, a few conservative journalists repeated ABC's bentonite report for several years, even after the invasion of Iraq, prove there was no involvement. Now we get into persons of interest. Barbara Hatch Rosenberg, a molecular biologist at the State University of New York at Purchase and chairwoman of a biological weapons panel at the Federation of American Scientists and others, began claiming that the attack might be the work of a rogue CIA agent in October of 2001, as soon as it became known that the Ames strain of anthrax had been used in the attacks. And she told the FBI the name of the most likely person. On October 21st of 2001, she made similar statements to the Biological and Toxic Weapons Convention in Geneva. In December of 2001, she published a compilation of evidence and comments on the source of the mailed anthrax via the website of the Federation of American Scientists, FAS, claiming that the attacks were perpetrated with the unwitting assistance of a sophisticated government program. She discussed the case with reporters from the New York Times, and on January 4th of 2002, Nicholas Christopher of the New York Times published a column titled Profile of a Killer, stating, I think I know who sent out the anthrax last fall. For months, Rosenberg gave speeches and stated her beliefs to many reporters from around the world. She posted analysis of the anthrax attacks to the FAS website on January 17th of 2002. On February 5th of 2002, she published Is the FBI Dragging Its Feet? In response, the FBI stated there is no prime suspect in this case at this time. The Washington Post reported FBI officials over the last week have flatly discounted Dr. Rosenberg's claims. On June 13th of 2002, Rosenberg posted the anthrax case, what the FBI knows, to the FAS site. On June 18th of 2002, she presented her theories to Senate staffers working for Senators DeShale and Lee. On June 25th, the FBI publicly searched Stephen Hatfield's apartment and he became a household name. The block has been kind of swarming with guys in suits. They just showed us a picture, asked if we had recognized this fellow. Gentleman with kind of dark hair, bushy mustache, kind of close set eyes. FBI agents have searched the apartment of a former army researcher named Dr. Stephen Hatfill. There was a lot of aspects of what Dr. Hatfill had done and said um, that made him quite appropriately the, the leading suspect. He was fired in 1999 for violating the lab procedures, and then he got a job with the government contractor and lost that security clearance for that job August 23rd of 2001, just about a month before the anthrax went in the mail. He was polygraphed three times. Each of those three showed evasions. His resumes were a skeleton of truth. He was mad at the world, and particularly mad at the government. A study that he commissioned that described a fictional terrorist attack Federal agents searched Stephen Hatfield's Maryland home for a second time. Hatfield has denied any involvement in the anthrax attacks. Let, let me just be clear here, and to be fair, this is the first bioterror attack in our nation's history. None of us are, were prepared for it. It scared 
the American public, it scared Congress. But nothing justified the treatment that, they, that he received here. Nothing whatsoever. I'll give you some sound checks, fellas. Tell me if this works for you. And so I came on to represent him in a case that, if it was brought, was undoubtedly going to be a death penalty case. Dr. Hatfield deserves to get his life back. And the American public deserves a real investigation. Let's look what actually happened here, okay? They signaled to the American public that Dr. Hatfield was the person who committed this horrendous attack. Is Dr. Hatfield a suspect? Well, he's a person of interest. Person of person interest. interest. Person of interest. It had such a huge draw from the media. And like they're all over the place, and there's helicopters above his apartment. A couple dopey agents fell madly in love with him. It was like a teenage romance crush. And they just kept pushing a round peg in a square hole. They essentially engaged in a campaign with their friends in the press to continually suggest to the American public that Dr. Hatfield had committed this offense. They did so without any evidence because they were happy to have a patsy here to suggest to the public that we're, we're making progress. It says to me that there's some good gumshoe detective work going on, and they're hot on the trail of, of somebody. People had differing views about how much they believe whether Hatfield was the right guy or not. But the problem is they just couldn't eliminate Stephen. They had me actually interview him more than once. You know, we start talking about, you know, his history with anthrax. And he says, you guys don't believe me. You think I did this. And, you know, my response to that was, well, Steve, did you do it? And he says, of course not, I didn't do it. But the Bureau still thought he was the right guy, and that's, that's why they moved forward. Now, one possible outcome, sources suggest, is that the government could bring charges against Hatfield unrelated to the anthrax attacks at all if they become convinced that's the only way to attacks stop in this country incidents. And still no arrest, even though investigators believe they know who the culprit is and where he is. What's going on here? This is like real pressure. You have him under surveillance 24-7. You're following him every place he goes. And he's often publicly tailed by the FBI, so closely that an agent drove over his foot three months ago. <laughs> the fucking dogs. They opened the doors of the apartment, and one of the dogs just excitedly bounded across the room uh, and went straight up to Dr. Hatfield. Now, what they didn't tell was that the dogs alerted on eight or nine other scientists. So that's the equivalent of saying, telling your boss, hey, I've got Dan's fingerprints on a gun, and not telling him, by the way, I got 10 other fingerprints on the gun that aren't Dan's. <laughs> this is in-your-face harassment. This was not surveillance. This was a design to sweat him. The pressure the criminal suspect has, and when the FBI has, has them under scrutiny, can lead them to break and do awful things, including committing suicide. He was so distressed about the media, and for whatever reason, they knew where we were going to interview him. 
I mean, it got so bad at one location that we actually put him in the back of a vehicle and took him to a hotel. I wasn't there, and I'm not going to judge sort of the day-to-day -day on that. But I will say, when you have somebody who you think committed this major bioweapons attack, you're going to want to look at, at every aspect of his life, and you're going to want to interview his friends, and you're going to want to perhaps physically surveil him. It's, it, it frankly would be malpractice if they hadn't done some of those things. Of course he should have been investigated. No one has ever complained that the FBI shouldn't have looked at him. The complaint is you wrenched him from all the other people that they were looking at and put him forefront in the American public and said, he's our guy. That's what happened here. And that's the complaint. Guess what? Once you burn a man's house down and then take his clothes, and then spit in his face, guess what? He's going to fight back. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Steve Hatfield. After one of the most intensive public and private investigations in American history, no one, no one, has come up with a shred of evidence that I had anything to do with the anthrax letters. I am not the anthrax killer. The FBI also pointed out that Hatfield had agreed to the search and is not considered a suspect. American Prospect and Salone.com reported Hatfield is not a suspect in the anthrax case, the FBI says. On August 3rd of 2002, Rosenberg told the media that the FBI asked her if a team of government scientists could be trying to frame Stephen J. Hatfield. In August of 2002, Attorney General John Ashcroft labelled Hatfield a person of interest in a press conference, though no charges were brought against him. Hatfield is a virologist, and he vehemently denied that he had anything to do with the anthrax mailings, and sued the FBI, the Justice Department, Ashcroft, Alberto Gonzalez, and others for violating his constitutional rights and for violating the Privacy Act. On June 27th of 2008, the Department of Justice announced that it would settle Hatfield's case for $5.8 million. Hatfield also sued the New York Times and its columnist Nicholas D. Kristof, as well as Donald Foster, Vanity Fair, Reader's Digest, and Vassar College for defamation. The case against the New York Times was initially dismissed, but it was reinstated on appeal. The dismissal was upheld by the appeals court on July 14th of 2008 on the basis that Hatfield was a public figure and malice had not been proven. The Supreme Court rejected an appeal on December 15th of 2008. Hatfield's lawsuits against Vanity Fair and Reader's Digest were settled out of court in February of 2007, but no details were made public. The statement released by Hatfield's lawyers said, and I quote, Dr. Hatfield's lawsuit has now been resolved to the mutual satisfaction of all the parties, end quote. Now we get into the major, major suspect in this case, and every, who everyone thinks did it, which was Bruce Edward Ivins. Now, Bruce E. Ivins had worked for 18 years at the government's biodefense labs at Fort Detrick and was a top biodefense researcher. The Bruce Ivins, he struck me as somewhat eccentric, but he had a worldwide reputation as one of the experts on anthrax. He was extremely well thought of, as opposed to being aloof and self-important. Bruce was neither of those things. As you look at him, 
I could see how he could be a suspect. Whoever committed this act of bioterrorism is somebody with a pretty extensive scientific background and access to deadly spores. I mean, one of the challenges we had was relying on the scientific community yeah. to help us in the investigation. What time? How do we know that they were being helpful? And so Bruce was definitely somebody that needed to be looked at. The FBI said, okay, all the people who had access to the AIM strain, send us a sample. Under subpoena, all of the scientists at USAMRD, including Bruce, would have had to have gone into their collection, sampled each of their tubes, and then the FBI would have sent that to my laboratory for a DNA analysis and also for long-term storage. And when they did the analysis for the morphs, none of the scientists' tubes have the morphs. And so they weren't part of the anthrax letter sources. Bruce was in the clear. Bruce's main project at the time was a new vaccine. We were all vaccinated, but this was a vaccine that went back decades and decades. And some people who got that anthrax vaccine ended up with knots on their arms the size of grapefruit. So he was trying to make a vaccine that was just as effective, but didn't cause the side effects. He was normal for a scientist, but he was out there a little bit by your general population. He definitely was one of those uh, geeky, nerdy guys that you see across the room. And they started pulling out emails that I had sent to Bruce Ivins. They were trying to figure out if there was any information in these emails that might have tipped off Bruce Ivins about the analysis that we were doing. That's when it kind of a light went off in my head and said, they're looking at Bruce. Many of his co-workers defended him and said, no, it couldn't be Bruce. And when we pointed to strange behaviors, you know, the things that Bruce did, it was always, well, that's just Bruce being Bruce. That was the common phrase that we heard. That's Bruce being Bruce. But from looking at Bruce's emails, it was clear that he had obsessions. His relationships with some of his coworkers were, um, you know, one woman, he wrote a lot of personal emails that were troubling. His behavior toward those women was the same as another of his obsessions. We found out that he had an obsession with KKG sorority. This obsession was something that he developed in the 1960s in college when he asked a girl on a date who'd belong to KKG sorority. She turned him down, then Bruce was rejected, and so he decided to steal from a sorority house. He stole their cipher, which allowed him to decrypt their rituals that they had. You know, and when you think about, here's a man 40 or 50 years later who had multiple personas, was 60 years old, posing as a 
sorority sister online? It kind of raises some eyebrows. One of the women that he had this strong interest or obsession with defended him over and over until we showed her some information that he somehow identified her password and would log on to her computer is her and read through her personal emails you know and then whenever he read something that was disparaging against him then he was just enraged by it it was pretty disturbing and she agreed to cooperate with us Associated Press reported on August 1st of 2008 that he had apparently committed suicide at the age of 62. It was widely reported that the FBI was about to press charges against him, but the evidence was largely circumstantial, and the grand jury in Washington reported that it was not ready to issue an indictment. Rush D. Holt Jr. represented the district where the anthrax letters were mailed, and he said that the circumstantial evidence was not enough and asked FBI Director Robert S. Mueller to appear before the Congress to provide an account of the investigation. Ivan's death left two unanswered questions. Scientists familiar with germ warfare said there was no evidence that, the, that he had the skills to turn anthrax into an inhalable powder. Alan Zelikoff aided to the FBI investigation and he stated, I don't think a vaccine specialist could do it. This is aerosol physics, not biology. End quote. W. Russell Byne worked in the bacteriology department of the Fort Detrick Research Facility. He said that Ivans was hounded by FBI agents who raided his home twice and he was hospitalized for depression during that time. According to Byron and local police, Ivans was removed from his workplace out of fears that he might harm himself or others. I think he was just psychologically exhausted by the whole process, Byron said. There are people who you just know are ticking time bombs. He was not one of them. End quote. On August 6th of 2008, federal prosecutors declared Ivans the sole perpetrator of the crime when U.S. Attorney Jeffrey A. Taylor laid out the case to the public. The genetically unique parent material of the anthrax spores was created and solely maintained by Dr. Ivans. But other experts disagreed, including biological warfare and anthrax expert Meryl Nass, who stated, Let me reiterate, no matter how good the microbial forensics may be, they can only at best link the anthrax to a particular strain in lab. They cannot link it to any individual. End quote. At least 10 scientists had regular access to the laboratory and its anthrax stock, and possibly quite a few more, counting visitors from other institutions and workers at laboratories in Ohio and New Mexico that had received anthrax samples from the flask. The FBI later claimed to have identified 419 people at Fort Detrick and other locations who had access to the lab where flask RMR1029 was stored or who had received samples from the flask RMR1029. Ivans told a mental health counsellor more than a year before the anthrax attacks that he was interested in a young woman who lived out of town and that he had mixed poison which he took with him when he went to watch her play in a soccer match. If she lost, he was going to poison her, said the counsellor who treated Ivans at a Frederick clinic four or five times in mid-2000. She went on to say that Ivans emphasised that he was a skillful scientist who knew how to do things without people finding out. The counsellor was so alarmed by his emotionless description of a specific homicidal plan that she immediately alerted the head of her clinic and a psychiatrist who had treated Ivans, as well as the Frederick Police Department. She said that the police told her that nothing could be done because she did not have the woman's address or her last name. In 2008, Ivans told a different therapist that he planned to kill his co-workers and go out in a blaze of glory. 
That therapist stated in an application for a restraining order that Ivans had a history of dating to his graduate days of homicidal threats, actions, plans, threats and actions towards therapists. Dr. David Irwin, his psychiatrist, called him homicidal sociopathic with clear intentions. According to the report on the Amerithax investigation published by the Department of Justice, Ivan's engaged in actions and made statements that indicated a consciousness of guilt. He took environmental samples in his laboratory without authorization and decontaminated areas in which he had worked without reporting his activities. He also threw away a book about secret codes which described methods similar to those used in the anthrax letters. Ivan's threatened other scientists, made equivocal statements about his possible involvement in a conversation with an acquaintance, and put together outlandish theories in an effort to shift the blame for the anthrax mailings to people close to him. The FBI said that Ivan's justifications for his actions after the environmental sampling, as well as his explanations for his subsequent sampling, contradicted his explanation for the motives for the sampling. According to the Department of Justice, Flask RMR-1029, which was created and controlled by Ivan's, was used to create the murder weapon. In 2002, researchers did not believe it was possible to distinguish between anthrax variants. In January of 2002, Ivan suggested that DNA sequencing should show differences in the genetics of anthrax mutations, which would allow the source to be identified. Despite researchers advising the FBI that this may not have been possible, Ivan's tutored agents on how to recognize them. Considered cutting-edge at that time, this technique is now commonplace. In February of 2002, Ivan's volunteered to provide samples from several variants of the AIM strain in order to compare their morphs. He submitted two test tubes slants, each from four samples of the Ames strain in his collection. Two of the slants were from Flask RMR1029, although the slants from Flask RMR1029 were later reported to be a positive match. All eight slants were reportedly in the wrong type of test tube and would therefore not be usable as evidence in court. On March 29th of 2002, Ivan's boss instructed Ivan's and others in suits in suites B3 and B4 on how to properly prepare slants for the FBI repository. The subpoena also included instructions on the proper way to prepare slants. When Ivans was told that his February samples did not meet FBIR requirements, he prepared eight new slants. The two new slants were prepared from Flask RMR1029, submitted in April by Ivans, did not contain the mutations that were later determined to be in Flask RMR1029. It was reported that in April 2004, Henry Hine found a test tube in the lab containing anthrax and contacted Ivans. In an email sent in reply, Ivans reportedly told him it was probably RMR1029 and for Hine to forward a sample to the FBI. Doubts regarding the reliability of the FBI tests were later raised when the FBI tested Hine's sample and a further one from Hine's test tube. One tested negative and one positive. A DOJ summary report on February 19th of 2010 said that the evidence suggested that Dr. Ivans obstructed the investigation either by providing a submission, which was not in compliance with a subpoena, or worse, that he deliberately submitted a false sample. Records released under the Freedom of Information Act in 2011 show that Ivans provided four sets of samples from 2002 to 2004, twice the number the FBI reported. Three of the four sets tested positive for the morphs. The FBI said that at a group therapy session on July 9th of 2008, Dr. Ivans was particularly upset. He revealed to the counselor and psychologist leading the group and other members of the group that he was a suspect in the anthrax investigation and that he was angry at the investigators, the government, and the system in general. He said he was not going to face the death penalty, but instead had a plan to take out co-workers and other individuals who had wronged him. He noted that it was possible with a plan to commit murder and not make a mess. He stated that he had a bulletproof vest and a list of co-workers who had wronged him and said that he 
he was going to obtain a Glock firearm from his son within the next day because federal agents were watching him and he could not obtain a weapon on his own. He added that he was going to go out in a blaze of glory. While in a mental hospital, Ivans made menacing phone calls to his social worker, Jean Dully, on July 11th and 12th. Now here's something very interesting about the letters. So in the letters sent to the media, the characters A and T were sometimes bolded or highlighted by tracing over, according to the FBI, suggesting the letters contained a hidden code. Some believe the letters to the New York Post and Tom Brockhow contained a hidden message in such highlighted characters. Here's how it would have worked. So it would have been the first T in this, the last T in next. Next line it was the highlighted was the T and take, then in penicillin the A was highlighted, in the next row A and death was highlighted, then the next word 2, the letter T was highlighted, then in the next column also the letter 2 had its T highlighted, and then in the last sentence Allah is great, A is highlighted, and the T in great is highlighted. Now, according to the FBI summary report issued on February 19th of 2010, following the search of Ivan's home, cars, and office on November 1st of 2007, investigators began examining his trash. A week later, just after 1am on the morning of November 8th, the FBI stated that Ivan's was observed throwing away a copy of a book entitled Godel Escher Bach, An Internal Golden Braid, published by Douglas Hofstadter in 1979, and a 1992 issue of American Scientist Journal, which contained an article article entitled The Linguistics of DNA, and is discussed among other things, codons and hidden messages. The book Godel Escher Bach contained a lengthy description of the encoding-decoding procedures, including an illustration of hiding a message within a message by bolding certain characters. According to the FBI summary report, when they lifted out just the bold letters, investigators got T-T-T-A-A-T-T-A-T, an apparent hidden message. The three-letter groups are codons, meaning that each sequence of three new nullic acids will code for a specific amino acid. So TTT supposedly equals penlalanine, AAT is supposed to be for asparaginine, and TAT is supposed to be for tyrosine. Now I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce any of those, so if I do get them wrong, I do apologize, listeners. The FBI summary report proceeds to say, from this analysis, two possible hidden meanings emerged. Number one, FNY, a verbal assault on New York, and two, PAT, the nickname of Dr. Ivan's former colleague, number two. Ivans was known to have a dislike for New York City and four of the media letters had been sent to New York. The report states that it was obviously impossible for the task force to determine with certainty that either of these two translations was correct. However, the key point to the investigative analysis is that there is a hidden message, not so much what that message is, which I don't kind of understand that. I mean, that makes no sense. The key point of the investigative analysis is that there is a hidden message, not so much what the message is. Wouldn't you want to know what the message is, not just the fact that there's a hidden message? Like, the fact that there's a hidden message has just as much meaning as what the message is because you want to know what exactly is being hidden and exactly what the message is. I don't quite understand how that statement is in any way accurate. But according to the FBI, Ivan's showed a fascination with codes and also had an interest in secrets and hidden messages and was familiar with biochemical codons. 
Now, experts have suggested that the anthrax mailings included a number of indications that this mailer was trying to avoid harming anyone with his warning letters. So, for example, none of the intended recipients of the letters were infected. The seams on the backs of the envelopes were taped over as if to make certain the powders could not escape through open seams. The letters were folded with a pharmaceutical fold, which was used for centuries to safely contain and transport doses of powdered medicines, and currently to safely hold trace evidence. The media letters provided medical advice, aka take penicillin now. The Senate letters informed the recipient that the powder was anthrax. We have this anthrax. At the time of the mailings, it was generally believed that such powders could not escape from a sealed envelope except through the two open corners where a letter opener is inserted, which had been taped shut. Now, in June 2008, Ivans was involuntarily committed to a psychiatric hospital. The FBI stated that during a June 5th group therapy session there, Ivans had a conversation with an unnamed witness during which he made a series of statements about the anthrax mailings that the FBI said could best be characterized as non-denial denials, which, when asked about the anthrax attacks and whether he could have anything to do with them, the FBI said that Ivans admitted he suffered from loss of memory, stating that he would wake up dressed and wonder if he'd gone out during the night. Some of his responses allegedly included the following selected quotes, such as, I can tell you I don't have it in my heart to kill anybody. I do not have any recollection of ever having done anything like that. As a matter of fact, I don't have a clue how to, how to make a bioweapon and I don't want to know. I can tell you I'm not a killer at heart. If I found out I was involved in some way and, and? I don't think of myself as a vicious, a nasty, evil person. I don't like to hurt people, accidentally, in in any way, and several scientists at USA MRRID wouldn't do that, and I, in my right mind, wouldn't do it. (laughs) But it's still, but I feel responsibility because the RMR1029 flask containing the anthrax spores wasn't locked up at the time, end quote. In an interview with the Confidential Human Resource, CHR, which took place on January 8th of 2008, the FBI said that, that the CHR told FBI agents that since Ivan's last interview with the FBI on November 1st of 2007, Ivan's had on occasion spontaneously declared at work, I could never intentionally kill or hurt someone. Now, there are doubts about the FBI's conclusions, because after the FBI announced that Ivans had acted alone, many people with a broad range of political views, some of whom were colleagues of Ivans, expressed doubts. Reasons cited for these doubts included that Ivans was only one of a hundred people who could have worked with the vial used in the attacks, and that the FBI couldn't place him near the New Jersey mailbox from which the anthrax was mailed. The FBI's own genetic consultant, Claire Fraser-Liggett, stated that the failure to find any spores in Ivans' house, vehicle, or any of his belongings seriously undermined their case. Noting unanswered questions about the FBI's scientific tests and lack of peer review, Jeffrey Adamovics, one of Ivan's superiors in USAMRIID's bacteriology division, stated, and I quote, I'd say the vast majority of people at Fort Detrick think he had nothing to do with it, end quote. More than 200 colleagues attended his memorial service following his death. Alternative theories proposed include the FBI incompetence that Syria or Iraq directed the attacks, or that similar to some 9-11 conspiracy theories, the US government knew in advance that the attacks would occur. Senator Patrick Lee, who had received an anthrax-tainted letter, said the FBI had not produced convincing evidence in the case. The Washington Post called for an independent investigation in the case, saying that reporters and scientists were poking holes in the case. 
on September 17th of 2008, Senator Patrick Lee told FBI Director Robert Mueller during testimony before the Judiciary Committee, which Lee chairs, that he did not believe Army scientist Bruce Ivins acted alone in the 2001 anthrax attacks, stating, I believe there are others involved, either as accessories before or accessories after the fact. I believe there are others out there. I believe there are others who could be charged with murder. Tom Daschle, the other Democratic senator targeted, believes Ivins was the sole culprit. Although the FBI matched the genetic origin of the attack spores to the spores in Ivan's flask RMR1029, the spores within the flask do not have the same silicon chemical fingerprint as the spores in the attack letters. The implication is that spores taken out of flask RMR1029 had been used to grow new spores for the mailings. On April 22nd of 2010, the U.S. National Research Council, the operating arm of the National Academy of Sciences, convened a review committee that heard testimony from Henry Hine, a microbiologist who was formerly employed at the Army's Biodefense Laboratory in Maryland, where Ivans had worked. Hine told the panel that it was impossible that the deadly spores had been produced undetected in Ivans' laboratory, as maintained by the FBI. He testified that at least a year of intensive work would have been required using the equipment at the Army lab to produce the quantity of spores contained in the letters, and that such an intensive effort could not have escaped the attention of colleagues. Hein also told the panel that lab technicians who worked closely with Ivans have told him they saw no such work. He stated further that biological containment measures where Ivan worked were inadequate to prevent anthrax spores from floating out of the laboratory into animal cages and offices. Quote, you'd have had dead animals or dead people. End quote. Hein said according to Science Magazine. Hein caveated his remarks by saying that he himself had no experience making anthrax stocks. Science Magazine provided additional comments by Adam Drix of Lawler, who stated that the amount of anthrax in the letters could be made in a number of days. Emails by Ivan state, We can presently make 1 times 10 to the power of 12 1 trillion spores per week. And the New York Times reported on May 7th of 2002 that the Lee letter contained 0.871 grams of anthrax power equivalent to 871 billion spores. Now, in a technical article to be published in the Journal of Bioterrorism and Biodefense in 2011, three scientists argued that the preparation of the spores did require a high level of sophistication, contrary to the position taken by federal authorities, that the material would have been unsophisticated. The paper is largely based on the high level of tin detected in tests of the mailed anthrax, and the tin may have been used to escapulate the spores, which required processing not possible in laboratories to which Ivans had access. According to the scientific article, this raises the possibility that Ivans was not the perpetrator or did not act alone. Earlier in the investigation, the FBI had named tin as a substance of interest, but the final report makes no mention of it and fails to address the high tin content. The chairwoman of the National Academy of Sciences panel that reviewed the FBI's scientific work and the director of a separate review by the Government Accountability Office said that the issues raised by the paper should be addressed. Other scientists, such as Jonathan L. Keel, a retired Air Force scientist who worked on anthrax for many years, did not agree with the author's assessments, saying that the tin might be a random containment rather than a clue to complex processing. Keel said that tin might simply be picked up by the spores as a result of the use of metal lab containers, although he did not test that idea. In 2011, the chief of the bacteriology division at the Army Laboratory, Patricia Warsham, said it lacked the facilities in 2001 to make the kind of spores in the letters. In 2001, the government conceded that the equipment required was not available in the lab, calling into question a key pillar of the FBI's case that Ivans had produced the anthrax in his lab. Now, according to Warsham, the lab's equipment for drying spores, a machine the size of a refrigerator, was not in containment so that it would be expected that non-immunized personnel in the area would have become ill 
Well, colleagues of Ivan's at the lab have asserted that he couldn't have grown the quantity of anthrax used in the letters without their noticing it. A spokeswoman for the Justice Department said that the investigators continue to believe that Ivan's acted alone. Now, Congressman Rush Holt, whose district in New Jersey includes a mailbox from which anthrax letters are believed to have been mailed, called for an investigation of the anthrax attacks by Congress or by an independent commission. He produced a bill entitled the Anthrax Attacks Investigation Act, H.R. 1248. Other members of Congress have also called for an independent investigation. An official of the U.S. administration said in March of 2010 that President Barack Obama probably would veto legislation authorizing the next budget for U.S. intelligence agencies if it called for a new investigation into the 2001 anthrax attacks as such an investigation would undermine public confidence in an FBI probe. In a letter to congressional leaders, Pisa Orzag, the director of the Office of Management and Budget at the time, wrote that an investigation would be duplicative and expressed concern about the appearance and precedent involved when Congress commissions an agency inspector general to replicate a criminal investigation, but did not list the anthrax investigation as an issue that was serious enough to advise a president to veto the entire bill. Now, in what appears to have been a response to lingering scepticism, on on September 16th of 2008, the FBI asked the National Academy of Sciences, NAS, to conduct an independent review of the scientific evidence that led the agency to implicate U.S. Army researcher Bruce Ivins in the anthrax litter attacks of 2001. However, despite taking this action, Director Muller said that the scientific methods applied in the investigation had already been vetted by the research community through the involvement of dozen non-agency scientists. The NAS review officially got underway on April 24th of 2009, while the scope of the project included the consideration of facts and data surrounding the investigation of the 2001 Bacillus anthracis mailings, as well as a review of the principles and methods used by the FBI. The NAS committee was not given the task to undertake an assessment of the probative value of the scientific evidence in any specific component of the investigation, prosecution, or civil litigation, nor to offer any view of the guilt or innocence of any of the involved people. Now, in mid-2009, the NAS committee held public sessions in which presentations were made by scientists, including scientists from the FBI laboratories. In September of 2009, scientists including Paul Keim of Northern Arizona University, Joseph Michael of Sandin... Sandia National Laboratory and Peter Weber of Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory presented their findings. In one of the presentations, scientists reported that they did not find any silica particles on the outside of the spores, there was no weaponization, and that only some of the spores in the anthrax litters contained silicon inside their spore coats. One of the spores was still inside the mother germ, yet it already had silicon inside its spore coat. In October of 2010, the FBI submitted materials to NAS that it had not previously provided. Included in the new materials were results of analysis performed on environmental samples collected from an overseas site. Those analyses yielded evidence of the AIMS strain in some samples. NAS recommended a review of those investigations. The NAS committee released its report on the 15th of February 2011, concluding that it was impossible to reach any definitive conclusion about the origins of the anthrax in the letters based solely on the available scientific evidence. The report also challenged the FBI and U.S. Justice Department's conclusion that a single spore batch of anthrax maintained by Ivans at his laboratory at Fort Detrick in Maryland was the parent material for the spores in the anthrax letters. 
Now we get into the aftermath of all of this. So, dozens of buildings were contaminated with anthrax as a result of the mailings. The companies in charge of the cleanup and decontaminating of buildings in New York City, including ABC headquarters and a midtown Manhattan building that was part of the Rockefeller Center and was home to the New York Post and Fox News, were Bio Recovery Corporation of Woodside, New York, and Bio Recovery Services of America, based in Ohio. Bio Recovery provided the labor and equipment, such as HEPA filtered negative pressure air scrubbers, HEPA vacuum respirators, cyclone foggers, which I've no idea what that is, and decontamination foam licensed by the Sandia National Laboratories. 93 bags of anthrax-contained mail were removed from the New York Post alone. The decontamination of the Brentwood Postal Facility took 26 months and cost over $130 million. The Hamilton, New Jersey Postal Facility remained closed until March 2005. Its cleanup cost a whopping $65 million. The United States Environmental Protection Agency led the collaborative effort to clean up their Hart Senate office building, where Senate Majority Leader Tom Daschle's office was located, as well as the Ford office building and several other locations around the Capitol. It used $27 million of its funds from it for its Superfund program on the Capitol Hill anthrax cleanup, and one FBI said the total damage exceeded over $1 billion. Now, The anthrax attacks, as well as the September 11, 2001 attacks, spurred significant increase in U.S. government funding for biological warfare research and preparedness. For example, biowarfare-related funding at the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, NIAID, increased by $1.5 billion in 2003. In 2004, Congress passed the Project BioShield Act, which provides $5.6 billion over 10 years for the purchase of new vaccines and drugs. These include the monoclonal antibody Raxibacumab, which tests anthrax as well as an anthrax vaccine absorbed, both of which are stockpiled by the US government. Immediately after 9-11, well before the mailing of any of the letters involved in the anthrax attacks, the White House prudently began distributing ciprofloxacin, the only drug approved by the US Food and Drug Administration for the treatment of inhalational anthrax, to senior staffers. Ciprofloxacin manufacturer Bayer Pharmaceuticals agreed to provide the United States with 100,000 doses for point for 95 cents per dose and a cut in the price of $1.74. The Canadian government had previously overridden the Bayer patent and the US was threatening the same measure if Bayer did not agree to negotiate the price. Shortly afterward, it was recommended that doxylene was a more appropriate drug to treat anthrax exposure. The widened use of the broad-spectrum antibiotic ciprofloxacin had also raised serious concerns amongst scientists about the creation and increased spread of drug-resistant bacteria strains. Numerous corporations offered to supply drugs for free, contingent of the Food and Drug Administration improving their products for anthrax treatment. They included Bristol-Myers Squibb, Gatafloxacin, Johnson & Johnson's Levofloxacin, and GlaxoSmithKline, two drugs. Eli Lilly and Pfizer also provide offered to provide drugs at cost. Sorry if I get any of these names wrong, I'm really not good at pronouncing these really technical names for drugs. The attacks also led to the widespread confiscation and curtailment of US mail, especially to US media companies. Checks, bills, letters and packages simply stopped arriving. For many people and businesses that had resisted the cultural shift to email, this was the moment that pushed them all online. 
After the 9-11 attacks and the subsequent anthrax mailings, lawmakers were pressed for legislation to combat further terrorist acts. Under heavy pressure from then-Attorney General John D. Ashcroft, a bipartisan compromise in the House Judiciary Committee allowed legislation for the Patriot Act to move forward for full consideration later that month. The Patriot Act is actually an extremely controversial act after what happened in 9-11, but that's a story for another podcast episode. A theory that Iraq was behind the attacks based on purported evidence that the powder was weaponized and some reports of alleged meetings between 9-11 conspirators and Iraqi officials may have contributed to the hysteria which ultimately enabled the 2003 evasion of Iraq. Years after the attacks, several anthrax victims reported lingering health problems including fatigue, shortness of breath, and memory loss. A 2004 study proposed that the total number of people harmed by the anthrax attacks of 2001 should be raised to 68. A postal inspector, William Pasolak, became severely ill and disabled after removing an anthrax-contaminated air filter from the Brentwood Mail facility on October 19th of 2001. Although his doctors, Tyler Simon and Gary Kirkvillet, believe that the illness was caused by anthrax exposure, blood tests did not find anthrax bacteria or antibodies, and therefore the CDC does not recognise it as a case of inhalational anthrax. The case remains unsolved to this very day. We are confident that Dr. Ivans was the only person responsible for these attacks. How is it possible that a guy in this state of mind could have tricked the FBI for so long? Officials say authorities were investigating whether Ivan's released anthrax as a way of testing the vaccine he developed here at Fort Detrick. Are you 100% certain, Bruce did it? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Beyond a reasonable doubt. Bruce was worried that his life's work dedicated to anthrax research was going to come to an end. Right? And then the anthrax attacks happened. And all of a sudden, the FDA quickly approves this batch of vaccines. And then Bruce ended up getting the highest award a civilian can get in the Army for his work on the anthrax. No, he's responsible for five murders, you know? How certain are you that Bruce is responsible? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not certain that he was the mailer. It's not like a murder case, you know, where you have a blood stain and, and you can come back and say, absolutely, this belongs to that person and that puts them at the crime scene. In, in the case of the anthrax with the DNA, uh, we just put the, the suspect or the perpetrator in the uh, vicinity of the, of the flask. It's a circumstantial case. There's no silver bullet here. But and, and if you want to look at any one little aspect, and pick it apart, that's fine. But I tell people it's like looking at the Mona Lisa through a drinking straw, right? You gotta step back and look at the whole thing. Former Supervisor Jeffrey Adamovich says Ivans knew he was under suspicion. If this case is closed and that evidence was not sufficient to indicate that he was the person who did this, that means that person is still out there. I think the FBI was under tremendous political pressure to solve this case, but it was clear that these spores had been processed in such a way that they had characteristics and features that weren't consistent with the spores that we made. And it didn't seem that Bruce had the technical knowledge to do that, nor did anybody else at the Institute. And that's what still bothers me to this day about this entire case. Bruce would tell us that he didn't have the skill set to grow the spores. 
but I met with the leading scientist and I said, how many people do you know that can make spores like this? And he goes, that I know of? Maybe six or eight. And Bruce was one of the first names. While the FBI believes it solved the case, an attorney for the Ivans family says nothing could be further from the truth. The evidence does not directly tie Ivans to the anthrax letters, but with the suspect now dead, the government will never have to prove that link. I was very disappointed in the FBI because there was still a lot to learn, and instead they closed the case and they destroyed the evidence. Almost all of those spores and samples have now been destroyed. And so uh, there's no chance to go back and reopen this and look at it. And now to that anthrax investigation. As you know, the prime suspect committed suicide. With news crews now descending upon the widow's home. Frederick you know, when I found out that he committed suicide, I, I thought through it a lot. I'd seen what the FBI had done with Stephen Hatfield, the pressure that they'd put on him to try to break him. It wasn't unusual for him to sleep all day because he's been depressed and concerned about this investigation. He's been incredibly, incredibly stressed because of the imagine. way he's been hounded by the FBI. I can imagine. And I just felt that he just couldn't take it anymore. Bruce talked about them threatening his family, trying to get his children to testify against him. Maybe he sent the letters and maybe he didn't. But it was the pressure of the FBI is why Bruce committed suicide. It is really hard for me to hear that, right? When I, I feel like, you know, we're accused of driving him to suicide. We did everything we could to both keep him safe, right? To protect himself and protect the public, but also pursuing him aggressively because we had to, because we were convinced that he was the one who committed the anthrax attacks. The investigation into the anthrax killer is being called the FBI's most expensive undertaking ever. The agency spent more than $10 million. Over the past seven years, they've followed up 50,000 leads on six continents, conducted 9,000 plus interviews, and issued 6,000 grand jury subpoenas. They never let this go. What could ever possibly motivate somebody to mail anthrax and kill innocent victims? And when you think about the letters themselves, the letters didn't get to Tom Brokaw. They didn't get to Senator Daschle. But who are the people who get sick? Mr. Stevens in Florida. The people who opened the letters in NBC. Let's close off the back. The people who are working in the Hart Senate office building. People who are coming in contact with it just through the course of their, like, duty as a civilian employee of the U.S. Postal Service. With that, this case remains open, but with many unanswered questions, it still remain unanswered. Please rate the show and let me know what you guys think about this and the many other cases I have covered. You can follow me on all major social media platforms, YouTube, BitChute, Dailymotion. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram. Links are all down below in the description. If you have a case you'd like me to have a look at or cover, don't hesitate to send me a message. I'm your host, and this has been the Unanswered Questions Podcast. Until next time next on Unanswered Questions. Tommy Burkett was a student at Marymount College in 1991, but on Thanksgiving weekend, he was found dead in his parents' Virginia home.